Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope. Never Ever Give Up Hope is a show about people who have done just that. They have gone through incredible circumstances, traumas, problems in their lives and have come out the other side a better person, a wiser person, a stronger person, and always one who is willing and wanting to share their story so that other people who may be going through these things can be helped and they can get some insight and some tips. So that's what this show is. And I'm so thankful and happy that you have decided to join us today because without the audience, we wouldn't have a show. Never Ever Give Up Hope is now heard in over over 140 countries. And that just shows me every single day that no matter where you are on this planet, the message of hope needs to be shared. And you never know when you share your story how it's going to touch that one person that can relate to you or the million that can relate to you and know that someone else survived what I did or what I'm going through. And so that's what we do. We share stories of people who have gone through so much and want to give back their secrets, their positive side of their negative story. All of my guests are fighters. All of them are winners. All of them are overcomers. So I thank you. I thank you for listening. I thank you to all my guests who have come on the show it's been a great, great ride. Today we have Teslin Reardon. Teslin is the passionate author of. Now, before I say the name of her book, I think many people are going to relate just as I did, because I often refer to my life experience as 40 years in the wilderness. And so when I saw the title of her book, it really clicked. And sometimes those 40 years that we go through, those negative experiences in our lives, feels like 400 years. And yet when we look back, they're just a moment. And so the name of her book is 40 Years of Practice, Finding Purpose in pain. Teslin has a degree in sports management, which she'll share with us in a little bit. And she currently works in marketing analytics. Welcome, Teslin. Thanks, Carol. Thanks for having me on. You betcha. Now, these were some words that described you in your bio, which is interesting. Divorce, ADHD, 
cancer, knee replacement, depression, rock bottom. These words often make people run for the hills because each and every one of them is a negative scenario. But as all of my interviewees have shared, it is through their pain that they gain strength and they gain courage and wisdom. And even more importantly, they gain the ability to empathize and help others. And you are no exception. I know this is what you want to do with your life. And I know this is how you look back at your life. So again, welcome and thank you for being here, Teslin. You have a sports management degree and you've had seven knee surgeries. Now somehow that doesn't compute. So let's start there and tell us what happened. Sure, yeah. Uh, I'd love to say it was less than seven, but I just had my seventh um, about 18 months ago. Um, when I was in high school, I had um, I had some bone, bone chips in my knee. Um, Pretty simple, pretty um, standard procedure. Just went in and did a scope and took out the little pieces. But when I was a sophomore in college, um, I was on the women's basketball team at the University of Massachusetts. Um, I uh, We were in practice one day, and I went up for a rebound and came down on my foot just ever so bent slightly the wrong way and blew out my knee. Um, so that was the first time I'd ever had really a serious, serious knee injury Um Tore everything, and you'll read about that in the book. Tore everything that I could tear within the knee. Uh, there was an, there's ACL, LCL, MCL, PCL. I tore every single CL you could think of. Um, so then, from that point on, I just constantly had different issues every single year of my career. Uh, when I was a sophomore, that's when I had the first surgery. I had another surgery following that to clean up some of the stuff because it wasn't my uh, excuse me my rehab wasn't going quite as well as it should have. Going into my junior year, I uh, ended up having a stress fracture because of the overcompensation I had done oh, for my okay. knee. Right. So I sat out an entire season with a stress fracture, but then also came back, tried to come back later in that season, and ended up tearing my cartilage yet again. So that point, I'm on surgery number four. <laughs> uh, surgery number five was just a couple years later. I had started to do cortisone shots because, as you can imagine, I was in pain pretty yes. much every single day, every single game, every single practice. So I would get cortisone shots prior to the games to make sure that I, just so I could play. And then we went in after one season and kind of cleaned everything out. And the doctor said, you know, you're crazy to continue playing. He's like, I know you want to. You've only got one year left. He's like, but you, it'd be okay if you hung it up right now. And mm-hmm. anybody that knows me knows basketball was my life. I've, it, you know, since I was in fifth grade, that's just how people knew me was through basketball. And there was no way that was going to happen. So uh, once I got through that, Ended up doing pretty well my senior season. Um, thought about playing professionally, but it just got to the point where I'm like, you know, this is probably the end of this road. It's probably time for me to step away and try something else in my life. Um, just the pain I had been. How difficult was that for you? That decision? Extremely difficult. Yes. Yeah, it was It was hard. It was hard when I was in college because when I had the surgery the first time, the, like I said, that's the first major surgery I'd had. Um, I'm from Ohio, so my mother and father were in Ohio. I'm in Massachusetts. It's 700 miles away. I couldn't just call my mommy for a hug and tell her to come sit with me and make me dinner. So it was tough for me to go through that. Um, I had to go to I had to go to class every day still and not have basketball. I, I kind of fell into a depression. Um, I didn't go to class. I had probably the worst semester I ever had when it came to grade wise. I just didn't, I didn't know who I was anymore. I felt like I lost that identity because I had come to school to play basketball. I didn't necessarily come to be a student. 
And I had to learn real quick that in order to survive through college, I, I'm going to have to go to class and I'm going to have to study. And, hey, you're probably not going to play basketball the rest of your life. So you're going to have to, you know, figure out something else to do. So it was a very difficult decision to make that make that call that, you know, it just wasn't in my plan to be in basketball for the rest of my life. What were you majoring in in school? I majored in sport management, but then with the extra year for basketball, I ended up with a double major in creative writing. What an interesting combination. So you must have, <laughs> you, you must have had that desire to write as well as a young child if you were maintaining that through your school years, right? Yeah, I um, had been a pretty good writer when I was in high school. Um, I had a couple teachers that actually encouraged me to, to write more because they loved the way I wrote. As you'll see, you know, within the book, if you read it, I write like I talk. So I'm not, I, I don't that. try to write so that I'm trying to make you think I'm smart or make you think that I'm so well-spoken and use these humongous words that no one understands. I literally, once you talk to me and then you read the book, my mom even told me, she said, I close my eyes and I can hear you reading this book to me because it's exactly the way I talk. I don't hold anything back. This is the most vulnerable you'll ever get is when I write. It's hard for me to talk about my life, but to sit down and write this book, was very, it's very easy for me to do that. Oh, my gosh. I can relate so much to that. And as I do, I know many other people are as well. And I really appreciate that. I think the flow a lot of times comes with because you are that type of author, that you are writing your story. When I was reading your blog, and I want everybody to, to go and check this out as well, I found that without you even saying that to me now, I found that, oh my goodness, this has got such a beautiful flow to it. And what it does is it draws the reader in. Mm -hmm. Just like yeah, I think that's what conversation. it is. Yes, you're being yeah, drawn in. So you're thanks. just talking to people and, yeah. and you're just, you know, you're letting them know the authentic you. And that's what I, that's what I appreciate about, you know, writers like you. It's just, you just want people to see the real you. I don't want them to, to think that I'm hard to approach or anything like that. Like, no, absolutely. I want to talk to you about everything. <laughs> That's just so let's go back. We're graduating, I believe, and you needed to mm -hmm. think about a new career. So you did that. How? I stumbled around a little bit once I graduated. Um, I came home, I moved back in with my parents, which, you know, that's the one thing we're always like, uh, I feel like everyone does that now. They move home for a couple years. So that's what I had to do. Kind of get myself in line, try to figure out my bills. You know, bills are coming through. My dad made me buy my buy my first car. I'm like, oh, no, here I am. I'm thinking he's going to buy my car for graduation. Oh, no, I paid every single penny of that car. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> um, but I moved home, and I ended up just kind of bouncing around. I did some, some um, temporary jobs, but then I ended up as a substitute school teacher, um, which actually wasn't bad. I just kind of felt like, hey, maybe I should give this a try. I like kids. You know, I, I like to um, interact with kids. I, I, I feel like I'm smart enough to do things like that. Uh, that worked out for a little while, uh, but it ended up just not being what I wanted to do. Uh, so after that, I ended up going to uh, a small college in um, western Massachusetts to coach basketball. So I thought, well, maybe if I can't play basketball, I can still have some basketball in my life. So I tried, tried my hand at coaching, and that didn't work out so well either. But um, I moved back home after that little trip and got my MBA and my dad always told me that I needed to have my MBA. He just really felt passionate about, Hey, if you want to do anything with sport management, if you want to be in the business world, you've got to go get your MBA. So that kind of started my life in a whole different direction. Once I finally made the choice to break down and, and go back to school. And were you happy with that choice or did it take you time to get to adjust? 
I was actually very happy with it. Once I got into the program and started the classes that I were in um, was really, they're really good, really challenged me to use my mind in a way that I hadn't used it before. And it only took me about 17 months to get through the program. And then from there, it felt like the doors just open wide open for me to, to find a different path with my life that had nothing to do with basketball. So it, it made me um, still appreciate what I went through in basketball. And I can take so many of the skills that I used in basketball through to the business world. Like I wish people could understand how much being an athlete really has an impact on the rest of your life when it comes to teamwork and it comes to hard work and it comes to all those different kinds of things. There's so much of a parallel between the business world and then growing up in athletics. Isn't that because of the discipline? Absolutely. A discipline, time management, um, having to work with other people, having to work under a boss that has super high expectations for you. Yeah, I really, I really do believe that basketball helped me um, kind of get me where I'm at today. And did you stay at that job? Yeah, I'm still in the business world right now. I've kind of somehow got myself into analytics. I'm not really sure. I uh, can't say that I loved math when I was in school, but I was, I was pretty good at it. But that's pretty much what I do every day is analyzing data, telling people what the trends are of, you know, certain things that are going on in the environment, the, the business world, things like that. So I do get to tell a story, maybe not through um, a book or anything like that, but I get to tell the story of what the data is telling me. So there is sort of a parallel between how I write and then also my day job. And what were some of the other things that were happening in your life that were basically quite negative? It's funny that I say that my dad wanted me to go back for my MBA. Um, I moved back. We moved, excuse me, I have to say we, because when I left Massachusetts to come back home in 2004, I brought somebody back with me, um, a man who would end up being my husband. Um, moved him to Ohio with me. We were here for probably three or four months and then found out that my father had cancer. Uh, he was diagnosed with stage four kidney cancer. So that kind of rocked my world a little bit. And the, the funny but not so funny part is, is that the day I was supposed to start my MBA program was the day we found out he, he had cancer. Oh, my word. So, yeah, so I ended up calling the school to say, hey, is there any way I can, you know, can I can I wait three months until the next class starts so that I could start then? I said, I really don't feel like I could start tonight. And I didn't want to tell my dad that. And he had, he was disappointed mm-hmm. when I told him that, but I'm like, look, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get it done. I don't want you to think that I'm not doing it because of you. I said, no, I'm doing it, you know, cause I want to be here for you. Yes. He and my mother were, are still my, have always been my best friends. I can't ever say that my parents were my parents when I was growing up. They've always been my best friends, my biggest supporters, my biggest fans, so this was my time to be there for them instead of the opposite of them being for me for the rest of my life. How long okay. was it that you had to spend with your father? Was it just the three months? Fortunately, he he was given three to six months when he was first diagnosed. But thankfully, um, we did some changing with doctors and we tried several treatments and, and clinical trials. And we actually got him for six more years. So he passed really? away in 2011. Yep. Yes, it was pretty. We were pretty fortunate to get him as long as we did. Now, you mentioned that you had a son. So did he ever meet your father? Yes. That little boy was the light of my father's life for about three years. Awesome. Yeah, they were best friends, best buddies. I mean, that's the one thing. If I have to think about my dad's death and who I'm more upset for, like, sure, I'm upset that I don't have him, but I'm more upset that my son didn't get to know him in the yes. way that I did because yes. they would have a pretty special relationship. But he'll see that through you as well in many ways, I'm sure. I'm so much like my father. <laughs> well, like I said, I was, you know, brought a man home with me. You know, we, 
Um, we do. We did everything backwards. So we once we moved home, we bought a house. Um, we didn't get engaged until probably five years. We were dating for five years before we got engaged. Um, but it worked out well because I think that my dad always wanted to make sure I was taken care of. And the good thing about as long as he, you know, we're able to have him around, um, he didn't get to walk me down the aisle. He walked me down the aisle as I was pregnant. So (laughs) I was six months pregnant when we got married, um, on a hot 96 degree day in the middle of October. 96 oh degrees goodness. in October. Wow. How does that even happen? <laughs> we got married outside, and that's oh. why we planned it for October was because, oh, the leaves are going to be beautiful <laughs> in southeastern Ohio. It'll be 70 degrees. It'll be beautiful. It was beautiful, but it was 96 degrees. Wow. <laughs> you know, we we had a lot of ups and downs all throughout, you know, our marriage. Everybody does. Um, Tyson was born on Valentine's Day of 2008, so probably six months or so after we, um, after we got married. So we really never had the married time before we had our son, which is okay. I mean, we, we enjoy him. He, like I said, he was the the light of my father's life. He really brought my dad a lot of joy in just the short, you know, three years that he was with him. Um, but as you said, we marriage struggles, things happen. I said, my father died in 2011. Uh, my son was actually diagnosed with, uh, ADHD right after my father died. So at the age of three, that was hard for us to imagine. I knew in my heart that there was something because from the moment I could feel him kicking, he didn't stop kicking. Oh my goodness. He didn't stop moving while he was inside of me. I thought it was the best feeling ever. Like I tell people I loved being pregnant because I just loved having, I loved the kicking. The activity, um, right. But we knew, oh, absolutely. But then once we, we were at daycare, I mean, he, my son had been kicked out of six daycares. And just because it wasn't that he was bad, he was just, he was active, couldn't sit still, just oh, just always had a lot going on. One school, they said he tried to climb out of a window. I'm like, okay, we well, just likes to climb. He wasn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> he just wanted to climb. Um, one was just that, like I said, he couldn't sit still. It was a much more structured school. Couldn't really couldn't get him to sit still there. We even tried a Montessori school and we were there for probably a visit for like a half an hour. They're like, yeah, we don't think that the school would be right for your son. And I'm just oh like, my goodness. they say that Montessori's take everyone. That's what they're supposed to be there for. Right. So we struggled there for a while of trying to get him in the right situation, trying to find him teachers that would actually work with him that wouldn't just push him to the side because they thought he was going to be um, just too much to handle. So that was hard for us because we're both at work. We both have full-time jobs and then having to get a phone call. Hey, you're going to pick up your son. This is what he's done. And it it was really hard on the two of us. I would think that would bring a lot of stress in the relationship. And that's obviously what, what happened. I would say, yes, that's part of it. Um, So in 2016, October of 2016, um, I actually was getting ready to have a knee, knee replacement. Um, at the ripe old age of 40, I was having a total knee replacement wow. from after all the surgeries I'd been through. A um, couple of days after that, my, my husband told me he was leaving me. Um, so it kind of turned my world upside down. I was not really bedridden, but I wasn't supposed to do a lot of walking and walking up and downstairs. And at that point, I, I kind of told him he had to leave. And he just, I, I didn't want to have him sitting there taking care of me, knowing that he didn't really want to be there. Yes. Um, so that's that was probably one of as much as I cried for my father dying, I probably cried more at the at my divorce, um, my my marriage falling apart. Well, that's also, I believe, a form of rejection, 
and that you have to really deal with. There's so many different emotions involved, is, aren't there? Say, so how did you? I mean, I, w- I went through went through the whole cycle of I was sad, I was mad, I felt guilty, I was embarrassed, I was ashamed. Um, I felt really bad about myself. I didn't know what this was going to do for my son. You've heard so many times of what divorce can do to kids. Yes. And then you throw in the fact that he has special needs and things like that. It's like, what is this going to do to him? And how are his relationships going to develop down the line? And what if my husband doesn't ever want to be with his son again? You know, all the bad things are going through your mind. Um, Luckily, right before he left me, um, I'd started going back to church. I hadn't been to church since I was 14 years old. After my grandmother died, she was my church partner for 14 years. Once she died, there was no one else for me to go with, so I I didn't go. Um, But just two months before he left, a friend of mine and her husband had started a church, and I had been gone, you know, religiously. I had gotten back into my reading the Bible and doing Bible studies and things like that and really trying to get back to what I I knew life was about. Um, It's not that I never believed in God. That's I always did. I just never, I guess I didn't understand Uh as much. Because when you're 14, you're just like, oh, yeah, I believe in God. But you don't know what God can do, and you don't know what God's trying to do for you. You just think he's just a man, and we just get to see him when we die. You don't really think about your day-to-day actions and how he comes into play. And honestly, that's really what got me through um, that time, and it's still getting me through 18 months later, is just knowing that I have someone I can talk to that may not be sitting right next to me, and may I may not be able to see his face, but that's that's who I talk to when I feel like I need Um, some reassurance that things are going to be okay and that these struggles that I'm going through are for a reason. I've always believed everything happens for a reason, and I'm just now understanding it more than ever, what that really, really means. I totally agree with you because, as I mentioned in the intro, so many people who have been through so many different types of problems, it's because of where they've gone that they... Uh, have a new direction and new insight and new strength and wisdom, etc. Now, one of the things along this line that you mentioned, and I'll read it because I love it, is life is less about what happens to you and more about how you choose to react. And that's what it comes down to. So elaborate a little bit on that, about the choosing part, how you react and how, you know, how you go through that. Because there are people who I know need to have that encouragement, it's very easy to react negatively and to scream and mm-hmm. holler and jump up and down or or to seek revenge or any number of things. But when you use the wisdom that you gain through these experiences and choose a way to react, it really does make a difference of the outcome. So share about that. Sure, absolutely. I mean, and I'm now getting, as I get more into the word and more into, you know, learning how to put these things to use in my life. When you think about it, I've learned a lot about manifestation and manifestation is it's real. I mean, it sounds like a really big word that people really don't understand, but whatever you put out into the universe, that's what's going to come back to you. If you're walking out of the house and you wake up first thing in the morning and you're already grumbling and brushing your teeth and getting mad and yelling at everybody and you leave the house and you yell at everybody that cuts you off in traffic and you're frowning at the person because they're, they didn't get your coffee order right. When you get to work, you're frowning at everybody because of everything else has happened. Of course, bad things are going to happen. People aren't going to want to talk to you anymore. You're going to, you may lose your job. People don't want to hire you for another job. It's, it's, 
it's how you put yourself out there to other people. I won't say it's easy. It's not easy to wake up every single morning, especially at the beginning of my divorce, to be a happy, smiling face, you know, to everybody I see. It wasn't an easy thing to do, but that's how, you know, sometimes you, they say fake it till you make it. And sometimes you have to literally fake it. Um, I don't consider myself a fake person. I'm very authentic, but there are times that you just have to fake a smile. And sometimes faking that smile, you might actually convince yourself that maybe you are happy and that you can be happy. Being miserable is not it doesn't have to be that way. You literally have a choice every single morning to to figure out what you want to do in that day. Do you want to go into that day being negative? Do you want to go out looking for the positive and everything? There is a positive to every every negative reaction that we have in the world. There's there's something good that's going to come out of it, but you still have to be able to to look into those bad things and find those little nuggets of gold that just aren't, you know, they're not going to be there for everybody to see. You just have to have to keep your eye out and just look for the good things instead of always looking for the bad. And that's exactly what you just said. You know, it's how, how you choose to react and then what you, you really put it in a, in a nutshell. So often mm-hmm. when we take those, those negative things, which we've talked about a couple times here today and put them on, how can someone else who's going through the same thing? How, how can I help them? And you'll find them, won't you? They'll, they, they gravitate. Absolutely. It's like a magnet because people know when you're empathetic and they want to be around somebody and say, hey, you know what? I just went through an awful divorce and my heart is broken. And how did you get through yours? And there's always ways that we can relate. And so don't deny the reality that you're living in by putting your head in the sand. I mean, accept that. But how do you respond to it? How do you react to it? Right. <laughs> you know, knowing that this is not the end of your story, and if you've listened to this show at, at all, you'll hear me say that many times. God knows the end of your story. You mm-hmm. don't know the end of your story. And he does, and he'll get you through because he wants to. You know, that's his desire. <laughs> I, so I'm sure that's, if you want to expound a little bit more on any of that, that'd be awesome. Sure. I mean, I will say that I do like that you said that about helping other people. I can't tell you how many wonderful interactions, how many things have come to me over the last couple of months that I don't know if they would have come to me had I not been going through what I was going through. Um, I've just been able to talk to people and relate to people in a much different way. I've had friends that have gone through divorce I've been able to talk to. I've had friends that have had problems with their children, issues at work, financial problems, anything like that. I'm helping a lady this is something I never thought I would do. I am a campaign manager for um, a woman here in Columbus, Ohio, that's running for the House of Representatives. Now, at last year at this time, or when I was married, do I think this ever would have come to me? <laughs> Probably not. My husband would have been like, are you nuts? Because I wouldn't have had the time to do it. But now that it's just, you know, I'm taking care of my son, but I, I'm trying to keep myself busy. And it's not busy to... For the sake of being busy, it's busy helping other people. And that takes a lot of the pressure off of me to make good things happen for myself because I'm helping other people fulfill their dreams. And by doing that, that's what I say with the manifestation. That's all going to come back to me at some point. This woman's going to appreciate what I've done for her. At some point, she may want to pay me back, but maybe she doesn't have to. There could be somebody out there that says, oh, wow. Hey, Ted, tell me about your dreams. Let's make this happen. So you just have to realize that as bad as you might feel, go try to make somebody else feel good. And that makes you feel good. And then it's just a, it's a, it's a domino effect. You're not looking for payback. That's the difference. Not at all. So tell us about your book. 
who is who is it written for? Tell us what it's about. Is it your story? Is it a is it a guidebook? Share about your book. So 40 years of practice, and I love the way you talked about it in the beginning, because that's kind of, it took me a while to get a really good title. I wasn't sure what title made sense. It was, I was trying to play off a of basketball, and I'm like, but it's not a basketball book. But then, I, you know, that's what we t- learned about at church, was 40 years in the wilderness. And I'm like, you know what? It just so happened to be I'm 40 years old, and I played basketball, and you can practice basketball. So it all kind of flowed together. <laughs> But I would say this book is for, I mean, anyone that has gone through rough times in their life where they didn't know what was going to happen next, where it just felt like everything was just coming one after one after one, like like they say, when it rains, it pours. Um, but it's also for people that maybe they haven't gone through anything, but they just want a feel-good story to see what someone else has been able to do with the, the difficulties that come with life. Um, the first, you know, the majority of the book, the first 75 pages is, or excuse me, seven, 17 chapters is more along the lines of what did I go through? Here are the things that, that I went through and here's how I dealt with them and here's how I turned them around. And then the last chapters are about my walk with God and finding my faith. And then those last three chapters, I tell you what, I don't, I'm not even sure where the words came from. I sat down one night and those the words that were coming from me were, were not my own. That's how I knew I was meant to write this book is when I will look back at those chapters and how I talk about my relationship with God. Now it's like I, I honestly felt like it was an out-of-body experience to, <laughs> to put these words on paper like, wow, I'm kind of, I sound kind of smart sometimes when it comes to this kind of stuff. <laughs> but it really, I mean, oh, my, you just have no idea. Like, did I just say that? Like, that is really profound. Way to go. <laughs> But it's just, that's how I knew that this book was meant to be written. And I, I know that there's a lot of people that have read it already, friends and family of mine, that they said, thank you. I didn't know what you had gone through. People think that I'm just, they've always told me how strong I was. You're the one of the most strongest women I've ever known because of what I went through with my dad and um, raising money for cancer after my father died, but raising a child and, and still being a, you know, a full-time, um, working full-time, but a single mother now. And, but people didn't understand what else was behind that. They just thought that it just came naturally. I'm like, oh, heavens no, I have to work at this every single day. I'm, if I, before I'd started, you know, going back to church when my husband left me, I would have probably fallen back into a very severe depression had I not been going back and doing those things that, that I hadn't done for so long. Um, I do feel like it was, it was meant to be for me to start when I did um, because he knew what was coming. Like you said, yes. God knows the end of your story. He he knew what was coming. So that's why he started poking me. You need to start going to church. You need to start going to church. Because two months later, I needed him more than I'd ever needed him before in my life. That's a real good synopsis. I appreciate you you sharing that. So tell us the services that you are now offering online. So what I like to do, like I said, it, co- it goes along with that um, helping other people. One thing I've always said is I feel like my purpose on, le- on this earth is to serve, to serve others. I want people to reach their goals. I want to know what people's dreams are, and I want to help them reach those dreams. So whether it's, you know, rewriting resumes, I love writing resumes. I know not everyone loves to do that, but as a writer, that's something I enjoy doing is to help other people learn what they're good at and then make it sound really, really good so everyone wants to hire them. And then and then there's also, um, I like to write business plans. I've written several business plans for people that want to start their own company. Again, no one wants to do that. That's not something similar. I can't wait to write a business plan. That's probably the last thing they're thinking of, but I know what that 
what that does to help get a business started. So I do some business planning and I also do a lot of work with nonprofits to where I help them write out business plans as well to help them set themselves up. Most people, when it comes to a nonprofit, they have a great purpose. They have passion for the, for the cause. They may not have the passion to sit down and write a 20 page document about what they're going to do. They may not know what they have to do when it comes to finances and getting board members and, and um, running um, getting grants and things like that. So I work with people to tell them, okay, these are things we need to think of. This is how you write a business plan. This is how you get a, a 501c3 status and walk them through that process to help. I just want to help other people to get their dreams met. So is there anything that you would like to say in conclusion? No, I just, I mean, I really appreciate this opportunity to tell my story. Um, I've not, I've never really been a person, I don't like to talk on the phone, and public speaking has always been very, um, something I didn't want to do with my life, but I feel this deeper calling now that there's something that I have to say, and there's, there are people that need to hear it, um, and I'm okay with that. It took me a little while to accept it. It took me 20 years to write this book because I wasn't sure what I was supposed to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that I've done it, I, I'm so glad that I've done it. I've got 10 other books in my head that kind of, you know, come out of this book. Right, so right. This book is kind of the, here's who I am and here's how you can trust me. So when you see the next book out, you'll know that I'm talking from experience. I'm not just selling you, you know, snake oil. Um, I'm the real deal. I'm going to tell you everything and, and it's going to be authentic. Well, thank you again, Teslin, for being on Never Ever Give Up Hope. And if there's any changes or a new book that comes out, we definitely will have you back again. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.